everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Scott Yenner. Uh, he is a professor of political philosophy at Boise State University, um, and he is the author of a great book, which we are going to get to talk about too, called The Recovery of Family Life. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. The immediate reason we wanted to have you on is uh, you have become uh, the object of a Title IX investigation, uh, and we wanted to sort of get the the view from uh, for upfront what what's going on and uh, and uh, is your job safe? Well, as I like to say, for now, for now, <laughs> for now. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I gave uh, I gave a talk at the National Conservatism Conference that was uh, critical of feminism and its effect on the family, and uh, and also on the character of men and women. And uh, you know, uh, about three weeks later, uh, the university was kind of in the middle of turmoil that happens these days from uh, social media swarms, and the university defended my right to say whatever I would like, but then they also solicited. Um, charges or uh, accusations from students and asked anyone who'd been harassed or uh, discriminated against to contact the university Harm. so that they could take Harm. action. And within four days, I had Title IX uh, accusations on my desk. Uh, this was kind of right before Christmas. So, you know, being inside of a Title IX thing is a little weird. Um, it's an administrative tribunal instead of a court of law with due process. So the nature of the charges is never fully revealed. You can never figure out who uh, made the accusations or what the foundation for the accusations are. Uh, the standard of proof is just the preponderance of the evidence instead of beyond a reasonable doubt. You can never cross-examine uh, the people who've accused you. And uh, there's a kind of presumption that the people who are accusing you have told the truth. And uh, so then the the investigation goes forward. At the end of it, uh, there's a moment where I get interviewed. And uh, in my particular case, the charges were, for instance, that I gave female students lower grades than male students. Now, I've been, I've been at this gig for 22 years, and uh, it would be very weird if that were true, <laughs> simply because generally females do better in most courses than males. And uh, the university had all of my grades for 22 years on file but nevertheless allowed these uh, scurrilous charges to go forward. I easily rebutted them. Uh, there were other charges that were in the same kind of category. And uh, so my hearing uh, wasn't one of these uh, long drawn out hearings that last 10 hours that often happens in Title IX things. Mine lasted an hour. And uh, at the end of that hour, uh, the investigator said that the charges would be dropped. Now the charges aren't dropped. What happens is that they say, there's insufficient evidence to go forward with further investigation. That's what passes for exoneration yeah. uh, in today's day and, day and age. And uh, so that's where I sit, uh, not exonerated, but rather insufficient evidence to go forward with charges. Wow. And what is the administration's position, uh, given that there was, quote unquote, insufficient evidence? Have they publicly come out in any way to support you? No. Uh, in fact, uh, the report seemed to have been sitting on someone's desk for about six weeks. So uh, after my after the investigation was over, no one even told me that it wasn't going to go forward until I started to uh, prompt them. And uh, then only the investigator said that she recommended that no charges would be going forward. There was never 
Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, like this the concrete thing that happened. So that once the Title IX investigation uh, began, uh, the university said that I had to have kind of monitors in my classroom to make sure I wasn't harassing or discriminating. And uh, so I had monitors in my classroom for the end of the fall semester. And what I had to do in the spring semester is record all my classes, which I do all anyways, because I knew things like this were going to be happening. And uh, I was never told to stop recording my classes and sending them into the university. That is, they, they never took out the remedies that were supposed yeah. to be there to uh, protect the students. So it is a little uh, strange, but the university is kind of trying to act like it never happened even to the point of not removing the kind of props that were there. So let, let's talk about, I mean, I, this is so outrageous on so many levels and we could do an entire podcast about just the outrages of Title IX or many podcasts about it, um, and particularly the outrage of the university soliciting complaints from students. I mean, I, I just, that, that's that's something I, I'm, I'm not aware that's happened publicly before, but, but let's talk about what you actually said, like why this has sort of driven people around the bend um, at, on your campus at your universities. Um, let's talk a little bit about the recovery of family life, your book and and kind of what what do you think were the things that you said um, at the conference in particular um, that seems to have gotten under people's skin so much that uh, that this whole uh, you know trial has started? Yeah, I think there were two elements of it, but let me back up and give the context for it. So the the broad argument that I tried to make was that strong countries need strong families, and that it would be impossible to build strong families on the foundations of feminism. So that uh, conservatives have been kind of trying over the last 50 years to accommodate uh, the principles of feminism. And uh, I think a more radical approach is necessary, which is that there needs to be some other way of imagining uh, the situation of women and men in the modern world apart from feminism. And what that means is that the differences between men and women are not traceable to socialization, that there's something natural about the differences. And uh, we can celebrate and even marvel at those differences. Um, that independence, uh, which is one of the goals that feminism has set for women, isn't a goal for either men or women. <laughs> that is, uh, we should, as a, as a political community, try to allow people to be mutually dependent on one another and create conditions where that is both uh, economically feasible and honored. And, uh, and the third principle of feminism is that they're supposed to end sexual taboos. And I think some, def some defense of sexual self-control uh, is absolutely essential to uh, psychological and political health. And so that we can't like compromise with those principles, we have to kind of reject those principles in order to go forward. I tried to make a positive defense of that idea by saying that feminism has been bad for men, it's been bad for women, and it's been bad for kids. The part where I said feminism has been bad for women is one of the parts uh, that uh, I think has gotten me in trouble. I said uh, something to the effect that feminism has led to women who are more medicated, meddlesome, and quarrelsome than they need to be. And I, it, it wasn't exactly poetic, but it was, uh, I think, defensible in light of public opinion polls and such. Um, and I think my book defends that proposition. So that was one of the prongs that feminism has been bad for women, and that's my formulation for why. Another thing uh, is I tried to imagine what the world without feminism would look like is that I mentioned that equity programs should be ended, especially about recruiting women into higher ed. You know, whenever there is a disparity, a sex disparity between men and women in a major, 
that is considered to be a bad thing, a dishonorable thing, and a problem to be solved by the university. So we don't mind that there are way more women in nursing, uh, and we don't try to recruit men into it, but when there's, two, when there's more men than women in engineering, we consider that to be a problem that needs to be solved. And I said we should not be recruiting women into uh, engineering and other kind of male-dominated professions, and we should be all right honoring those male-dominated professions and thinking that it's okay that they're male-dominated, excuse me, those majors. And what happened with that is I said we shouldn't recruit women into these things, and then, you know, what people said is what I said was that people, uh, those, those programs should stop admitting women, and then people were, like, the next role in this uh, libel was that there shouldn't be uh, women in those, allowed to even work in those professions. And um, so, you know, my words were very much twisted, um, but, you know, the, the sense of it was that I think we should be all right with male-dominated professions and majors uh, where they exist and not say that they're always traceable to discrimination and um, social, socializing girls away from that. Right. So you're countering the idea that simply because there's a disparity, it's due to discrimination, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Why do you think there is such a search for parity? What is it that you think animates that goal? Just see, you just said in nursing, there's a huge disparity, but no one seems to care that there are far more women than men. What animates this, this goal of representational parity? We could even you know, take a step outside of this and think about it uh, just at universities. You know, it's about at the point in the country where 60% of all undergraduates are females and 40% are males. It's not quite there, but it's getting there. And that imparity or disparity is never considered to be a problem. So the fact that the parity concern only goes in one direction suggests to me that it is actually not a parity concern that it's it's about rule who's going to rule the environment at these universities so the concern for parity i think is just kind of a getting the camel's a nose into the tent so that the universities can be run uh, in the ethos of uh, in this particular case feminist women and i actually talked about that in the in my speech at uh, at natcon but no one really went crazy about that but so I mean, I, I wanted to, you know, this is a this podcast. It's mostly about policies that affect children. And you mentioned, you know, your position that the kind of feminist approach to family life has not benefited children. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? And did you find that there was pushback on that point? No, uh, you know, there aren't there aren't a lot of pushbacks on that. I mean, it seems to me that one of the one of the very solid social science findings is that family dissolution is bad for kids, either families that fail to form so that you have single parent households that ends up being bad for kids. Like it's bad for their st the stability that is necessary to lead a good life. Uh, it's difficult for them to do well in school. All these secondary indicators like crime and such uh, are much worse for students, uh, or for kids who are not from families uh, that that are from families that failed to form. And also divorce is bad for kids. These are uh, pretty well established social science findings, though not as solid as the ones about single kids. What feminists do with that finding is that they kind of ridicule it or mock it 
so you, you, you hear them talking about things like the feedback loop. Well, someone does a study showing that cohabitation is bad for kids. And then someone else cites that study as evidence for the proposition that it's bad for kids. And then that leads to further studies and you get like this echo chamber or in, uh, in industry, conservative family industry, where they keep trying to promote uh, and, and uh, justify this particular finding. And, uh, and that's their way of dealing with it. You know, I don't think there's a lot of intellectual engagement among feminists about the consequences of their policies when it comes to kids. And uh, there, there's a kind of denial because, you know, the reality is that if we're going to put kids first, some of the goals of feminism have to go away. <laughs> and, uh, and I think the early and very revolutionary feminist thinkers, I'm thinking people like uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Shulamith Firestone and Kate Millett, and uh, Phyllis Chrysler, and maybe even Betty Friedan, all of them really recognize that feminism would end up being really bad for family life, and they're willing to pay the price. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've moved beyond that uh, intellectually, because feminists refuse to engage the literature that would ultimately point to some away from their principles and their ideology. Well, they're claiming, I mean, the, the modern feminists I take your point that they're not willing to engage with what the social science literature says about the effects of this on kids. But I think the way that they say that they're engaging with it, you know, the sort of Sheryl Sandbergs and the rest of them are just saying, you know, every, everything can happen at the same time. Kids, kids can be raised well and, and women can have all the choices they want. And, and you're sort of um, making this this uh, dichotomy where but we shouldn't have to make those choices. Right. Everyone can, can get everything that they want. Right. And um, public policy just has to take yes. up the slack. You know, government. Yes, exactly. has to yeah, no, that's uh, so that would be a second part of this. So that uh, that's what I mean by the not yet. Feminism will work once we have once we have created the proper policy environment for feminism to work. And what that means is in this particular case, something like universal daycare, uh, government-supported daycare, universal preschool, uh, long uh, after school programs for kids so that people can balance their careers and, uh, and have kids. And I think really what we find out in, under those circumstances is that almost everywhere, there's some exceptions to this, people just stop having kids under those circumstances. Uh, and this is, this is another one of my, I don't know if this is a radical thing that I um, that I think is supported by the evidence, but it's the thing I do think is supported by the evidence, is that uh, men and women will have children together when those children are real responsibilities. That is when they have a, an important role in shaping their lives. The more we try to relieve the burdens and the duties of parenthood, the less willing people are to actually take on the duties and burdens of parenthood. Mm -hmm. So the easier we make it, the fewer kids that are had. And I think this is something you can see kind of universally throughout the Western and the Eastern world. You can't incentivize people into having kids because it's genuinely a duty and a burden on your time. So how do you shape an environment where people are willing to take on the duties and burdens of parenthood? And I think the evidence shows that trying to relieve people of those duties and burdens doesn't lead to fruitful, uh, fruitful family life. Mm. What do you think we should be teaching kids on this topic? What's the best way to inculcate kids into the right way to think about these issues? I mean, I run schools for a living, right? Yeah. And so I think a lot about this question of 
what should we be teaching kids about their decisions as they enter young adulthood? So for example, you're probably familiar with something called the success sequence. Naomi is like, oh my God, not again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very important. I can't so, argue with success, Ian. How exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know, you're probably familiar with the data that says, you know, if you just finish your high school degree, full-time job of any kind, so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if you have children, marriage first, the data shows that 97% of kids avoid poverty, as well as their offspring. So that seems to be a pretty powerful counter to some of the ideas that are being pushed here. So, so I, I guess, so that's the context. What could we be doing in K to 12 education to have kids think differently about these kinds of issues? I'm familiar with the success sequence stuff. And, you know, I, I think it's definitely a thing, right? My issue with it, and I guess what I would argue that needs to be the focus of education is kind of a positive and a negative. Uh, it seems to me that right now our education is geared toward uh, careerism uh, and especially an emphasis on female success leading to careerism. And, uh, and I think education has to be more balanced than that. And all I mean by that is one of the predominant questions that people need to be struggling with is how are you going to work in genuine family life into your life? Like, I would like you to think about what your life is going to be like when you're 40, not all of the steps that are necessary to get you into the internship that's going to lead to the entry level position that's going to get you to where you want to be when you're 33 in a career. But rather, what do you want your life to look like when you're 40 or 60 to encourage this long range view so that people can actually plan on and imagine what their life is going to be life and how they're going to integrate family and marriage into it. And then like the, the real positive part there is I think images of marriage, happy marriage need to be part of uh, education. So books on it, just as we have lots of books on transitioning from one gender to another among kindergartners now in order to encourage a particular vision of what the good life is. I think kind of the old approach to this is much healthier where we uh, would have images of happy family life, even with sex roles where they're not denied, uh, might be a, a, a better way of shaping the minds and affections of children. I'm also involved in education a little bit, not just as a teacher, but I help run a classical Christian school. It's a private school in uh, Boise, Idaho. And one of the frustrations with that uh, has been that it's difficult to get very career-oriented parents ever to take family life and marriage for their kids seriously. Even among very conservative uh, Christian-type families, it's difficult to get people to prioritize that in their lives. Me and, me uh, meaning what? Because aren't they married in their own lives? The parents are often married, but, you know, like the, the same trends that exist everywhere else in the country exist, uh, you know, everywhere else in the country, I suppose. What that means is that the family size is very small. People have their children late. And they emphasize career independence with their kids, much and, and uh, therefore college prep when it comes to education, a lot more than I would say a balanced view of trying to integrate all of these goods into their lives. Yeah, even especially conservative, striving parents um, have that kind of issue, I think. One of the things that I enjoyed about your book was this idea that there are grooves that people generally fit into and which is to say to get back to your 
your earlier point about how you weren't trying to, you know, tell women they weren't allowed to go into engineering, but that, you know, if, if women are less inclined to go into one thing or another, or more inclined to want to stay home with kids or more inclined, um, you know, to become kindergarten teachers or whatever it is, that society and families and parents shouldn't be shoving them into another track, you know, either for the sake of, you know, of social parity or because we think it will lead to greater, I don't know, career independence for them or something like that. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that, that whole groove idea, because I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little more nuanced than your critics are giving you credit for. So one of the ideas I put forward in the book is that nature provides tracks or grooves within which society's ideas about gender travel. Generally, men are more competitive um, than women, say, and women are more agreeable and social than men. Uh, that means that generally women are going to you know, be involved more in education, especially among young children, uh, than men are, and men are going to be like more inclined to astronautical engineering or something. Or men are going to be more likely to be criminals, <laughs> and women are much more, are much less likely to be criminals. But what that, what these things mean, ends up being imagined by a particular society. So uh, the fact that men are more competitive, say, than uh, than women, means that men are more likely to be soldiers, and you can have societies that are based on militarism. Uh, but you can also have societies that aren't that militaristic and that they're based on like modern commerce, where there's a lot of competitive companies out there trying to outdo one another. How we imagine gender travels in the grooves of sex, but it, uh, but you know, there's not like a one-to-one -one relationship between these things. It's not like the body leads to one conclusion. The body leads to many conclusions for both men and for women. And, but there's general tendencies that we really can't do anything about. Feminism says that those tendencies are created by society. The idea of a groove is trying to suggest that those, uh, those differences are created by nature. And society's job is to imagine how translating nature into social life will lead to the happiness of men and women differently experienced but, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, not any less valuable for the fact that it's differently experienced. One of the ways we do it is family life, like men are going to have and women are going to do different things in family life generally. And uh, th those are the grooves. Women might just be, for the most part, better at taking care of infants than men are. And that's not something we should uh, feel bad about, but rather we should try to support instead of trying to socially engineer away we should try to support as a society those differences. I have to say that I, I really admire what, you know, these days takes courage to say the things that you're saying. And I'm wondering how, what is the impact? Because you're able to speak these things. You've gone through this trial. You've not been exonerated, but there isn't, you know, sufficient evidence. What's, what's the overall We effect? think you've been exonerated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But what is the chilling effect? Because I, I imagine you think you're you're taking great courage. And I wonder even if right now you're editing and thinking about every word that you're saying and what the potential consequences are. What is the effect on a professor like you and other professors? And what is this doing to us as a country and an, and an academic community? Well, 
You know, it doesn't take a ton of cancellations to get people not to ask the questions that lead to cancellations. And, uh, and so I think the effect is that certain questions just simply get taken off the, the table. And uh, very uh, many fewer people will ask those questions. And therefore, you know, real answers to those questions aren't going to be achieved. So um, only, you know, answers that are consistent with the you know, predominant ideology are acceptable. But anyone who's interested in giving a different kind of answer will just start asking different questions. So I don't think there's any question about it that these findings uh, that have been so predominant in social science are really no longer being created on universities. Uh, Brad Wilcox, whose success sequence is one of the things that you referred to, Ian, just before, is one of the few real academic sociologists who still publishes his work in his own name, and he has to rely extraordinarily on the data, right? And uh, you're not allowed to ever extrapolate from it. So I think we as a country are very much impoverished, and the academy itself has like this compartmentalized this question into the list of forbidden questions. Mm. And, um, and I think that's the status of it. It doesn't take more than five people probably in the country to get canceled in the way that the University of Bo at Boise State tried to do to me to make something much more forbidden. Wow. And I think there was a study done um, by some, uh, it was some magazine trying to say that cancellations don't have an effect on academic culture. There's only been 128 cancellations on universities uh, in the last five years. It's like, what? I look at it just the opposite. Like there's 128? Imagine everyone knows at least a dozen of those stories and everyone learns the lesson from them, which is, don't ask that question. And if you do ask it, give the approved answers. Mm. Oh, boy. Thank well, you for your courage. Funny. And thank you for giving us all. No, seriously, man. This is that you give you give me courage. You give me strength to know that standing for what's right is what we got to do. Well, thank you so much, uh, Scott Yenner, for joining us today. We really appreciate your perspective and your book, which we encourage people to go out and buy The Recovery of Family Life. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me?, which you can get on the AEI podcast channels or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Scott.